This podcast is brought to you by Reynolds & Reynolds, the industry leader in automotive technology. Reynolds has turned the page to what's next by making it possible for you to retail anywhere. Discover your next chapter at reyrey.com slash me. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash me. Welcome to Daily Drive for Thursday, February 23rd, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News. And I'm Kellen Walker. Today on the show... When's the last time we heard about a truck plant being idled to manage inventory? That's what GM is doing in Indiana. The UAW boosts strike pay in advance of this fall's contract negotiations. And Lucid plans to double 2023 production despite softening demand. Plus, Bloomberg Intelligence has some thought-provoking analysis of the auto industry's credit markets. We'll hear from analyst Joel Levington. There is fear. Right? And it's really fear around pricing and what will happen with residuals and what will happen with the consumer. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. General Motors says it will idle its Fort Wayne Assembly full-size pickup plant in Indiana next month. It will be idle for two weeks as the automaker works to manage inventory levels. GM spokesman Dan Flores says Fort Wayne Assembly is the only factory affected by the announcement. Fort Wayne Assembly builds the light-duty Chevrolet Silverado and GMC Sierra pickups. GM makes the same models at its Salau plant in Mexico. It also builds heavy-duty Silverado and Sierra pickups in Flint, Michigan, and light and heavy-duty versions of the Silverado in Oshawa, Ontario. Earlier this week, GM also idled its Bowling Green Assembly plant in Kentucky, which builds the Corvette. It cited a temporary parts shortage unrelated to semiconductors. The UAW has announced that its International Executive Board is raising strike pay by $100. It will now be $500 per week. The decision comes as reform candidates assume power and President Ray Curry fights for re-election. Establishment-backed delegates rejected the move seven months ago. The union cited continuing inflation and high-profile negotiations coming this fall with the Detroit three automakers as reason for the raise. The board unanimously approved the measure. The International Executive Board previously raised strike pay to $400 a week from $275 per week in June 2022. Toyota, Honda, and Mazda got high marks in a new safety study. The brands won top three rankings in the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety's Top Safety Pick Plus Awards this year. Overall, the number of vehicles earning top awards dropped. Compared with last year, the grading scale tends to get a little tougher every year, and that was especially true this year. 28 models received the Top Safety Pick Plus Award this year, compared with 65 models at this point in 2022. An additional 20 models earned the Top Safety Pick designation, compared with 36 last year. For this year, IIHS called for better side crash protection and pedestrian crash prevention systems, as well as toughened requirements for headlights. And Lucid's reservation backlog for its air sedan fell to 28,000 this week. That's compared with 34,000 late last year. It's a sign of easing demand. Despite that, the luxury EV maker says it plans to nearly double production in 2023 to as many as 14,000 cars. In its fourth quarter earnings report, Lucid said revenue was almost 10 times what it was a year earlier. It reported $260 million in revenue compared to $26 million a year before. 
The EV maker's fourth quarter net loss narrowed to about $470 million from a loss over a billion dollars a year earlier. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, UAW has raised strike pay by $100. They're bracing for a fight, aren't they? Yeah, it sure looks like it. You know, the talks will come around this fall, and it's very likely that we could see a strike at one or more automakers. There's been a change in leadership already. We're still in the runoff election for UAW president, but we've already seen a lot of reform candidates uh, get into leadership positions. And uh, as you kind of alluded to in the story earlier, you know, it was a real bizarre drama at the convention last year where after the strike pay had been raised to $400, people gathered at the convention, they'd voted to raise it to $500. And then when a lot of the reform-minded people started leaving, they took another vote and took it back to 400 So kind of a, a curious move then, not one that sat well with a lot of folks out in the plants. Uh, so we're seeing this more uh, popular move in the waning days of the runoff election. The next couple months should be very interesting. Coming up, What are credit markets saying about the auto industry's fortunes in 2023? We'll hear from Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Joel Levington next on Daily Drive. Reynolds & Reynolds recently announced a new logo and brand image to better reflect the company it is today and its vision for the future. Hear what Chris Walsh, president of Reynolds & Reynolds, has to say about Reynolds' rebrand and the next chapter. I think, you know, if you look back, it really started, you know, probably two years ago with a new leadership team in place and the decision to kind of look at how we can be a better company and how we can better serve our customers and how we can help them be more successful. But it's really accelerated the last, you know, 12 months. This is a commitment to a new kind of company in my eyes and a new way of kind of cohabitating in the industry, helping our customers be more successful. And, uh, you know, the marketing side of this is, I mean, it's certainly important to help to have a marketing organization that, you know, kind of takes your messages and makes them concise and and impactful and and broadcast that to the world. That's certainly a critical part you know, of what we're doing. But this is not a marketing program. This is, you know, a company-wide initiative you know, to better serve the industry and to, you know, help us get to the next chapter uh, in automotive. Visit rayray.com slash me to learn more about Reynolds' vision for the future and discover your next chapter. That's com slash me. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. As Global Director of Fixed Income Research and Senior Auto and Industrial Credit Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, Joel Livington brings a different perspective than a lot of other people we refer to as auto analysts. He really looks across the whole industry, from suppliers to automakers to retailers and even consumers, to see how the biggest sums of money are distributed through the credit or bond markets. I reached him in New Jersey. Joel Livington, welcome back to Daily Drive. Jamie, thank you so much. Please set the stage for our audience. You know, just How big is the auto industry within the debt market? Sure. Well, the auto debt market, just bonds, is over $775 billion. And when you you know put in bank loans and term loans, things like that, it's well over a trillion dollars. So it's really a massive market. Many people go in or are interested on the equity side, but wind up interested on the debt side because the debt is actually uh, larger than the, than the equity market for autos. Kind of as it is with the, the markets overall, right? I mean, big industrial companies just borrow a lot of money in order to finance their own construction and uh, the sale of their products. Yeah, you're totally right, Jamie. Although I would say with the auto markets, it's 
one of the unique things about it is that auto companies are really two companies put together. They're for at least many of them, uh, meaning that one is the manufacturing side. And then, of course, the other side is really the financial institution that's inside the company, right, to, to, to provide the loan or the lease to finance the transaction, much in the way that Caterpillar or John Deere do with their equipment. And that's really where most of the debt takes place. The manufacturing sides uh, really can't handle much debt. And we've seen that time and again during the recession. That's when General Motors went bankrupt because it had debt at the manufacturing side. And so most companies keep the manufacturing business lightly levered, but the finance sides tend to be much more levered. And that tend to, tends to be about where 75 to 80% of the debt is located. Well, let's dig into some of your recent work. I want to start at kind of the end of the value chain, the consumers. You know, their loans and leases are often bundled up and packaged as asset-backed securities to reach a bigger pool of investors. What's happening in that market? And what does it tell us about the auto consumer and the auto industry and maybe the economy at large? Sure. Uh, <laughs> not too many questions. Um, well, what I would say about <laughs> the asset-backed market that right now the ABS market, even at the highest level or AAA level, meaning the it, it, a level of risk that is better than the U.S. government, at least through the eyes of the credit raters, uh, that uh, that type of risk is uh, yielding about 5.3%. That's about the highest in five years. And it's really disconnected somewhat, uh, not only with corporate bonds, meaning like the bonds of a General Motors or a Ford, it really has disconnected even with like the higher quality names like a Toyota. And so that's kind of interesting to me because what it's really telling you is that there is fear, right? And it's really fear around pricing uh, and what will happen with residuals and what will happen with the consumer. Now, I know on the terminal, economists uh, peg a recession at about 60% uh, chance of happening in the U.S. this year. I know our own Bloomberg economists point to September as the specific time of the, of the year when it'll happen. But certainly, as I'm sure you've heard over the last couple of weeks, Jamie, autos don't seem to be uh, viewing it as a particularly onerous year. Maybe Ford is the exception, and that's really maybe them shooting themselves in the foot a little bit more than, than the macro environment. But most of them are pointing to a pretty solid year, maybe one that is stable uh, relative to uh, 2022. But the fact that most of them, and we saw today with Stellantis and their reporting, right, they've come out with a, a share buyback program and that follows Mercedes and General Motors about doing the same sorts of activities. So I think most autos are cautiously optimistic on the year, but it's early, <laughs> you know, and uh, I guess we'll see as the year goes on what actually happens with the consumer, because there, there certainly are signals in the market that are telling you that you should be, uh, you know, like uh, leery of, uh, of what's about to come. Yeah. I mean, the general consensus is we should see greater production and probably a little margin compression, all of which should still lead to lots of uh, leases and loans getting repaid. It's just that the black swan or other recession risk that's out there, you know, what could happen with Russia or anything that would cause it maybe a deep recession that I would think would have people at least, I don't know, one to 10% fearful. <laughs> Yeah. And I would certainly say, you know, if you look at the subprime data, some of those metrics show that like subprime loans are already at a, a level of delinquency that hasn't been seen since the great financial crisis. And so, you know, like that's before we're in a recession. So there's definitely signs out there that there is trouble that is brewing underneath, 
you know, like what looks to be a relatively healthy economy. And so that's something to certainly keep abreast of, especially because every day you're hearing in the news, you know, like the Microsofts and the Googles and the best of the companies in the world uh, are laying off people. You know, like how does that impact the economy, especially with uh, all of the COVID payments that people had been given over the last couple of years are now kind of gone. And so there's definitely reason to, to pause. Uh, but the fact that all the autos seem to think that they'll be able to hold on to pricing and the fact is, is that raw materials, particularly uh, steel, uh, is down a lot, and that will give them some head headroom to lower some prices if they need to, without uh, margins really crashing. But I think that that tends to be the concern that I hear the most from from customers um, is really around the margin side of things. And uh, and if you st start seeing a pricing war, say with uh, Tesla, you know, like doing something beyond what they've already done, which is cut prices between six and twenty percent. You know, like, what does that mean for the traditional OEM and their profitability? And as you know, that's 100% margin business when you just give up price. So that could be uh, like the, those tend to be the sticking points that people are focused on to, uh, these days. I want to talk a little about retailers. Of course, a, n a number of them are big enough to have public debt. And one that's been drawing a lot of particular attention lately has been Carvana, the online used vehicle specialist. You've had headlines like Barbarians at the Vending Machine and Carvana <laughs> 2.0 needs private lending cost cuts and new management. And pretty bold stuff. You're saying I mean, the, the market really sees them as in trouble. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's been interesting this year because it's almost been treated like Hertz was when it first was filing for bankruptcy and then went into bankruptcy and that the stock exploded higher, uh, almost, I guess, like a meme stock. Uh, although from a financial standpoint, they... I guess in the case of Hertz went into into bankruptcy. I guess we'll see what happens with Carvana, but but really like the analysis that that we're looking at with Carvana is one where because they've put so much debt on the balance sheet, you're talking about eight billion dollars worth of debt for a company that has never generated any positive cash flow, and we're anticipating about a billion and a half dollars of cash burn before 2024. So you know, like, what's the way out? And it's really hard to find that way out. You could potentially secure all of your real estate to try to get some additional liquidity to stave off the cash burn and kind of hope that, you know, like coming out of it, you're just a super over leveraged company that, you know, has all of its assets secured. Or you could look at it and say, hey, what we really need to do is slash about 85% of the debt that we have and kind of reset the balance sheet at a level that, you know, if you did that by 2025, their balance sheet would actually look very similar to, you know, like an Asbury or a Sonic or, you know, like a more traditional auto retailer, perhaps with a stronger business position. And I guess that becomes the battle that you have to fight. But there's going to need to be some sort of bridge to get from point A to B. And either that's going to be through securing everything and maybe that works to, you know, like restructuring the balance sheet. And my guess is that it's probably an easier and smarter way to do things is the latter case. I think that's part of it. The other part that you tend to hear a lot about with Carvana really falls into kind of like the ESG category. You know, how do you trust a management team that while it may have had a great idea, clearly there's some governance issues around them and, you know, like with their connections with drive time, uh, clearly there are some issues around them with the amount of times that they miss their guidance and certainly the Odessa acquisition, the timing of it, and certainly the financing of it all get kind of put into the same question as to like, how do I get comfortable in loaning them new money 
having had so many uh, challenges in the, in the past. And that's where the comment really comes from, is that I think for people to get comfortable, the, the strategy has to evolve. And maybe some of the players uh, that are pushing that strategy need to, uh, to be adjusted as well. So my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of time the action in the bond market is really about competitive distinctions. Uh, the money is in the market, it's in the sector, and it just shifts from one company to another. And you had a recent piece headlined, Tesla and Mercedes, massive hidden assets are staring right at us. What were the hidden assets and are they now reflected in the market? Well, Brand Finance puts out this great study every year where they look at all the global brands, uh, whether it's an auto or any company, and they highlight like what they view the value is and what the changes might have been year over year and what the values are today. You know, one of the things that I think about, Jamie, since I'm a credit guy and I guess the glass is always half empty for, <laughs> for a credit person, <laughs> is what, what happens in, you know, difficult financial times. Now, we know in the case of Ford, when things got tough in the, in the great financial crisis, they were able to get a loan in part because they secured the Blue Oval, right, as well as pretty much all the assets that they have. And really what brand finances data tells you is that there's billions of dollars of value in the brand names. And it's a instrument that, you know, a typical or traditional credit analyst would not consider as a tool if you needed it. But the fact is, is that, you know, when you look at brand finance, they're saying that Tesla might have over $60 billion worth of brand value, right? And Mercedes was this, the second largest auto. And I, I believe Toyota was the third. So these are companies that have tremendous resources. And here's, you know, like one other, I guess, you know, tool in the toolkit, if they ever needed to use it, it is there. And it, obviously it is staring at us every time we look at one of the, you know, beautiful cars that these uh, manufacturers make. And yet it's never really thought about, but uh, it's really interesting stuff that the brand finance folks come up with. And it's it's great to be able to showcase like here is just a, an extra arrow in the quiver, the liquidity quiver, if you need it. I'm wondering, you know, when companies generally lose money on EVs, but when they make announcements that they're going to ramp up EV investment and EV offerings, uh, the stock often goes up. Uh, what happens in the bond market? Do bond investors get excited by all-in on EV strategies? Well, they get excited, but maybe not in the same way. I think the truth with autos is that to a certain extent, it really doesn't matter for a credit person. And the reason that I say that, at least today's auto investor, and the reason for that is simple. The average bond, like if we go back to that $775 billion worth of bonds that are out there, the average maturity is about three and a half years. And uh, hopefully all of us are together in three and a half years and we can describe it. But in three and a half years, the world's not going to be decided in the world of electric vehicles. Who's going to have the dominant share or, you know, who is going to drop or lose market share? Probably not going to matter all that much. And again, if most of the debt is tied to a loan or leased asset, you know, it really becomes what the value is of that product at that point in time, more so than, you know, like, what happens if you know auto ABC gains two percent of market share or loses two percent of market share? It's really about the uh, the vehicle behind that loan or lease and where that stands. So it's a nice thing to talk about, but the, by and large, the majority of debt that's issued is very short dated, you know, and ties very nicely to the asset side, which is the loan or lease, as opposed to the manufacturer. There are cases where uh, like Ford and GM both have some thirty year bonds. And if you're going to buy that and hold it for, for the 30 years for the life of the, of the bond, 
then you have a different story and then you have to kind of think about that and where the companies might fit in. But on a day-to-day basis, your average uh, lender shouldn't really be overly concerned about it because it's it's almost secondary to, you know, like the value of the car that, that, that they've supported or the fleet that they've supported today. Yeah, that's interesting perspective. Before I let you go, I want to talk about suppliers at least a little bit. They've had a rough few years during the pandemic uh, with inconsistent production schedules, higher costs and all that, uh, and lower volumes overall. Is the bond market showing a larger risk of default or distress among the auto supply base? The suppliers in general are are high high yield or junk rated uh, autos, and therefore, um, you know, always trade wide to, to virtually all OEMs. So from that perspective, they have a little bit higher default risk. But I think by and large, they're not particularly showing any difference between dealers. And that to me is kind of an interesting position because at least as I look at 2023, to your point, Jamie, I think the, the fundamental story is that volumes will improve. And, uh, you know, supply chains are improving for the most part. I think the expectation is that SAR will be somewhere in the high 14s or low 15 kind of range, which means that there'll be a little bit of growth on the volume side. And if you have that, auto suppliers should do pretty well, especially as raw material pricing comes down, right? Because a supplier is really a volume driven business. In contrast, dealers, which are also by and large junk rated companies, they're going to get squeezed on margin, right? It, and whether it's coming back in the form of lower MSRP or, or more likely through incentives, you're going to see margin pressure there. And that's a very high fixed cost base of cost that you have. It's not as if the, the dealer lot is going to change in size, uh, whether you're selling one car or 20 cars a day. And so to me, I think there's an interesting, maybe not trade, but interesting idea to think about because bonds of both sets of, of auto uh, food chain components, the dealers and the suppliers, pretty much trade alike. And it seems uh, very clear to me that at least one side is going to benefit from the trends that should happen in 2023, and one is going to get hurt from the trends. And typically, if you're on the credit side, the trends are usually uh, your friends if you're on the right side of it. So uh, I think there's a case for the suppliers to uh, the supplier bonds to, to certainly outperform the dealer bonds uh, this year. Great perspective. Joel Levington, Bloomberg Intelligence, Chief Analyst for the auto industry. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, Jamie. Thank you. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News Coordinating Producer Jake Neer, as well as our own Lindsey Van Hulley, Michael Martinez, Miranda Dunlap, and Lawrence Iliff for their help on today's podcast. You can get the latest news on economic trends, manufacturing, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a conversation about how dealership service drives can better engage and empower staff to teach them leadership skills. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.